Galatians 6, verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Thank you so much, David, for reading that. Thank you as well to um, Alistair and James for leading our worship this morning. Um, I didn't realize how much I needed it, actually, until it happened, so thank you for that. Um, Well, it's it's a real privilege to um, spend some time together this morning in these last sentences of the letter to the Galatians. Um, Much has been said about verse 11, actually, um, about whether it suggests that Paul had bad eyesight or or what. Um, I I don't really want to get tangled up in that this morning, Um, but I think for our purposes, I think it's sufficient to say that what Paul clearly wanted was for his final sentences to have a flourish, an emphasis to his readership. I'm writing to this in, your own, in my own hand. So we need to take note, I think, of these final sentences. They're not just a simple rounding out. They're actually a drawing through of the very heart of the gospel, of what Paul is trying to say to the church in Galatia. Um, so it's really important, I think, that we meditate on these final, these final verses this morning. And for me, the heart of the conclusion is actually line 14 line 14, and it's where I want to rest this morning. So if you have a Bible, we're going to rest on one verse this morning, um, and we're going to try to begin to unpick some of the truth of what Paul's trying to say here. Um, I think we need to put to one side the whole issue about circumcision and all of that. I think we need to arrive at the very beating heart of Paul's theology, the reason for his hot anger and his passion earlier in the letter. This letter, the letter to the Galatians, is fundamentally about the believer's relationship to the world and how the believer is called by Christ to be in the world but not of the world, to be in the world but not of the world just as he was, just as he was. As far as Paul sees it and Jesus for that matter, the believer's relationship with the world has undergone a complete transformation. Or, as Paul states in his letter, a new creation. You know, the Bible begins with a story of creation that sets in place a relationship between humans and the world. 
And in Christ, the new Adam, this new creation, this new relationship has been defined. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. We thank you that we get the freedom and the time to explore it together. Open our eyes, engage our minds, soften our hearts as we reflect on who you are and who we should be in your world. Amen. So let's just read line 14 together again. Let's just look at it again, okay? It's the very heart of the passage. It says this, May I never boast except in the cross of Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's an incredible sentence. It's an incredible sentence, and I think it should provoke in us a series of questions to try and understand what Paul is trying to say. Number one, why should Paul boast in the torture and death of a Savior? Number two, what does it mean to say that the world has been crucified to me? What does that mean? Number three, what does it mean to say that I have been crucified to the world? And number four, what is the world? What is the world? What is Paul referring to here? And I think there are four questions there that we're going to try and unpack, but briefly. (laughs) Firstly, what does Paul mean about only boasting in the cross of Jesus? You know, Paul is responding here to those who are operating in Galatia, who are bending the ears of the Christians. And he makes the point in verse 12 that one of the key drivers of this movement towards circumcision is to do with outward appearance. Circumcision, he says, is a form of religious boasting. It's supposedly an outward display of religious fidelity. It also has the added benefit of conferring legitimacy on the new Christian believers so that they might avoid persecution by both Jews and and Gentiles. You know, circumcision is a process that is intended to bring honor and legitimacy to these Christians, to make them acceptable to society. And Paul has made his feelings very clear about this earlier in the letter. And Paul's response to this line of thinking is to go entirely the other way, entirely the other way. He says, may I never boast except in the cross. May I never boast except in the cross. And it's a sentiment echoed elsewhere, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, you can look that up later. There are so many tensions in the words never and accept. The word never has a certainty to it, doesn't it? Has a finality to it. And it's wrapped up in Paul's belief that Christ's death and resurrection dealt with the power of sin once and for all time. This is why Paul can use the word never. He is confident in his belief There is no room for doubt or equivocation on this point. He will never have cause to boast about anything for the rest of his life and for the rest of the time. Why? Because Christ alone has once and for all made a way for human beings to make right their relationships with God. This is a product of grace. It's a product of grace something that we can never boast about. 
Boasting is a product of pride in an achievement of some sort. If we fully absorb the truth of the cross and Christ's incredible work of grace, everything else pales into comparison. Everything else pales into comparison. How could we possibly boast when everything we have and everything we are is a product of grace, an undeserved gift from the Father and through the Son? The days of boasting, Paul says, are gone forever. The days of boasting are gone forever. And yet Paul uses that word except. There is only one condition now in which humans can boast, and that is in the cross of Christ. This is why the gospel seems like foolishness to the world, to those institutions and systems and people that do not recognize Christ as Savior. Boasting that your Lord and Savior has been tortured and murdered in the most horrific and shameful of circumstances runs counter to our worldly conceptions of what brings honor or cause for boasting. It's a redefinition. To boast in Christ's death makes no sense to the world. To boast in Christ's death makes no sense to the world unless you see with the eyes of faith what it means for us. There is, of course, for all of us, a danger that we find ourselves boasting about the wrong things. Even as we go about our Christian lives, we might boast about an outreach program or musical arrangements or technology or shiny buildings or work with the poor or acts of generosity or our history or the quality of our coffee and so on. There is nothing wrong with any of these ministries, of course, but they must not be a source of our pride. The world measures success by such things. The source of our boasting is the cross of Christ alone. Nothing else matters, and that will and should always be the case. So I think Paul's very clear about that. Secondly, what does Paul mean when he says that the world has been crucified to him? I don't know whether you ever read a sentence in Scripture that's familiar to you and you just kind of gloss over it. And then, but if you stop for a moment and say, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to say that the world has been crucified to him? What does that mean? Well, I think it's important to clarify what Paul might mean by the world. He does not mean that the world has become meaningless to the believing Christian. He does not mean that. The world being crucified to the Christian does not mean that we're called to turn our back on the earth or the people who live upon it. It doesn't mean that we should choose to cloister ourselves away. It does not mean that we turn away from the many tragedies and injustices that are allowed to take place in our lifetimes. Indeed, the Gospel of John makes it very clear in chapter 3 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So let's make no mistake, we are called to love the world, the people as well as the natural environment. We're called to love the world. Christ's prayer in John 17, which is a prayer that he prays just before he's arrested, emphasizes this idea, and this is what Jesus prays 
He prays in verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. It's clear, therefore, that Jesus always intended us to be in the world, but not of the world. We are called to love the world as Jesus did, and the only way to achieve this is to follow his example. And that means taking up our crosses. And that means taking up our crosses and crucifying those aspects of ourselves that might yearn for the trappings and successes of the world. The idea of crucifixion is a perfect metaphor for the position that the believer must hold, to be pulled in opposite directions, to be pulled in opposite directions with one arm stretched into the world and one arm stretched away from it, resisting. It is a life of tension. It is a life of tension. It is an uncomfortable, sometimes painful faith. 1 John chapter 2.15 is helpful here to aid in our understanding of this. John makes a distinction in his first letter that can seem contradictory at first. He says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that feels contradictory, doesn't it, to what we're saying? Indeed, an even stronger example can be found in the book of James, where he says that anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. How do we reconcile this? How can we love the world as Jesus commands us to, and yet not be friends with the world? How do we reconcile this? Feels like an impossible position, doesn't it? Feels like an impossible position. Thankfully, John in his letter goes on to explain what he means. He says this, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. If the world has been crucified to us, it means that we both express sacrificial love for the world, but also that we reject and separate ourselves from those aspects of the world that are in opposition to God, the systems, the behaviors, the powers that are governed by the human desire to consume and destroy for selfish gain. The words that John uses aptly describe the default behavior of humankind when operating out of selfish desire. You know, human beings, we crave, we lust, and we boast. The default message of humankind without God is put yourself first. Put yourself first. Grab all you can. Glory in your own achievements. Trample on the weak, always want more. This, my friends, is the dark thread of capitalism, and it is rife in our society. It is also, of course, the part of the world that is responsible for poisoning and polluting our planet. And so we find ourselves in the impossible position that Christ himself was called to occupy, to love the world that hates us, 
or to love the world that champions values and behaviors that we can never align ourselves with. Thankfully, what is impossible is made possible by God. If you feel that it's an impossible tension this morning, it is made possible by God. My friends, the believer should find themselves pulled apart by this contradiction. To live in a world that operates so contrary to what we understand human life to be, and yet to love it anyway, even if it hates us, is our message. This is what Jesus meant when he called us to take up our cross. Knowing that the world will not gather around to honor our suffering, and indeed is likely to be the cause of it. I don't know your circumstances this week. I wonder how many of us have felt the tension of holding this position this week, pulled in opposite directions by what the world asks from us and what God asks from us. And if you're feeling strained this morning, weary of the tension, I pray that God salves your wounds by His Spirit and gives you rest. So what does this mean for us as we seek to live godly lives on this earth? Well, Paul expresses it as crucifying ourselves to the world. So first of all, we crucify the world to ourselves, and then he says we crucify ourselves to the world. Well, what does that mean? I think to crucify myself to the world means to live opposite values to the default system of human behavior. It doesn't mean that we don't crave lust or boast. We're not perfect and never will be in this life. But we are called to crucify such things so that we might love the world all the more. It's a call to holiness. It means living the calling of Christ in our lives. It's about daily behavior. It's not about religious ceremony. This is why in Paul states in verse 15 that things like circumcision have been rendered meaningless. It's now about everyday behavior built on faith and grace. And so we look at Christ as our model. Crucifying ourselves to the world means ensuring that the first are last and that the last are first. It means that we should love our enemies. It means that we should give away what we can to the poor, even if it means we have less ourselves. It means being prepared to suffer indignity, pain, so that others might benefit and that God might be glorified. It means being humble, attributing all our achievements and gifts to God. These are not natural human behaviors, by the way. These are not natural human behaviors. It's a hard calling. They run counter to our fallen natures. And yet, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's not an easy road. It's narrow. It's difficult. And yet, we're promised that it leads to life in all its fullness. Not just in the new creation, but now. Life in all its fullness now. You know, we should not be surprised to find that the default way of worldly living does not bring wholeness and joy. Have you noticed that? <laughs> look at our society. Look at, look at people that you know. So many people in this city of Bath have everything they need everything they need, 
and yet are still racked with anguish. I work with privileged young people in my day-to-day life, and they are racked with anguish, racked with sadness. Our society is full of cravings and lust, but an insatiable desire that they can never quench these things. And that, what does that lead to? It leads to depression. It leads to anxiety, addiction. You would not believe the level of difficulty that young people experience that I work with. You will not believe it. They have everything they need. And yet they struggle just to make it through the day. You know, the story of humanity is that we are inclined towards self-destruction. That is the story of the Bible. It shouldn't surprise us to see that in our society. It shouldn't come as a shock. The way of the world is not just death in the future, it's death now. It's a shadow life full of shiny objects and spiritual emptiness. We're called to something different. We're called to something more. You know, Paul's way of living a life in which we crucify the self, it can mean physical and spiritual suffering. It can. In fact, it will mean those things. But it can also paradoxically bring joy, gladness, hope, love. He is encouraging us to live a completely new way, to be new creations, and to embrace all that God has for us, both now and in the future kingdom. And if all this sounds impossibly difficult, I encourage you to reread Jesus' prayer for his disciples and all believers in John chapter 17. If you've not read that prayer recently, read it again. If you're feeling that life's just difficult, that you're pulled and strained, read it again. Before he's arrested, before he's crucified, read what he prays for his people. His care and compassion is incredible. Even on the night that he knows he's going to be arrested and tortured, his principal concern is for us, his friends, his followers. He knows all too well that the lives that he's calling us to will be a life of tension that we are called to love. And he prays that we might all be one, that we might be unified together in this, that we might be sanctified by the Father, that we might know that we are loved, that we might be protected by the Father and through His Spirit. And this is how Jesus finishes the prayer. He says, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. That's us. I have made you known and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You know, as we come to the table, let us acknowledge that we are called to be crucified to the world with Christ. Christ is with us in this. We are called to occupy an impossible tension, to love the world even as we reject so much of what the world stands for. We are called to love sacrificially and sometimes at great cost. And yet we are also promised in these scriptures and reminded through these sacraments that He is now known to us, that God is known to us through Jesus His Son and that by His sacrifice we have no cause to fear.
that through his spirit we have been made new. And so I conclude with the blessing of Paul from the end of Galatians, who says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. Amen.